I can remember a few years ago reading some research about marketing. And in this case, it was uh, dealing with choice. In particular, about how many options or choices are enough to give a customer variety without overwhelming them. The hypothesis was that too many choices make it so that the customer can't make a decision in many cases. They're afraid of choosing the wrong one. Now, think of the internet and what we have available today. If you were considering a purchase, maybe a Farkle for your bike, love that word, Farkle, uh, meaning an accessory for your bike, just a quick online research, uh, or rather a quick online search, reveals almost an endless number of choices. And it's overwhelming at times, to say the least. But to make matters worse, it's not just choosing the correct one for your application or your ride, because the internet makes it so that any company in the world has the option to sell to the whole world. I mean, we've got Amazon, eBay, the list goes on. Well, it means that anyone can offer a product that looks just like another product, maybe without having done the R&D, the research and development that is required for, for a product like that. So they punch something out that looks great on the surface, but may have inferior materials, maybe inferior design, manufacturing, or maybe all three of those or a combination of them. And this just clouds the issue even more. So the question is, how do you know when something is quality? And what is quality? Well, today we're looking for answers and ideas. We're going to start with talking about what quality is and just what can go into quality to make a quality product. And then we're going to get some ideas about how to discern between something that just looks good and something that is actually good. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ned Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Chris Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Nowadays, when it comes to buying a product, particularly online, aren't you finding that the sheer volume of choice is overwhelming? I mean, you search for anything, anything, and you have a landslide of results. I'm not just talking about Amazon or eBay here, everywhere on the web. If you went back just a few years ago, you'd search for a product and the results would be some retailers that that sell the product and then likely the manufacturer. You'd look at those. Maybe you want to decide, you, you decide you want to dig a little deeper. So you search for the product and then reviews. You come up with um, the on-site seller reviews, the typical ones, you know, Amazon, et cetera. And then maybe there's some other sites where people have reviewed the product professionally. And that's where they actually take the product. They try it. Um, they talk about it. And then they delve into the pros and cons. Maybe give it a final rating in the end. Maybe it's a magazine or a portal. But in case you aren't aware of it, We've had a paradigm shift in the supply chain as well as the information chain. Here's what I mean. Let's say you're searching for a brake lever that you broke last weekend uh, when you're out with your bike, you dropped it, you broke the brake lever, simple thing, you're going to replace it. You type in brake lever for your brand and model, you hit enter. Now, very likely, the search results will return a huge list of possibilities. Maybe not if you're riding a Bruff Superior, but if you're riding a more common bike, let's just say that for the example's sake. 
There's loads and loads of places that sell a lever. But to complicate things even further, the sheer number of brand names you see is, well, again, I'll use the word, overwhelming. Particularly if you're not up to what the popular brand names are for whatever industry or whatever product you're looking at. It can be confusing to try and figure out which is good, which is bad, which is a scam. Uh, I mean, you feel like the first thing you need to do is sort through all of these to try and to determine which is junk or which is not quality and which is quality. And only then can you start looking at designs, shapes, and colors, etc. But the big question is, how do you do this? It's getting more and more complicated. The further we go along with the internet, the more websites with misinformation and disinformation and just someone trying to get you to click on one of their links and look at an ad. So how do you know the difference between a good-looking, cheap lever compared to a quality lever that's actual quality? Because the trend now is to make things look so authentic and to feel so solid when you hold them in your hand, it's almost impossible to discern the difference with the naked eye. This always makes me think of that, uh, that song by a band called Trooper. This song, I think, was in the late 70s, early 80s. It was called Three Dressed Up as a Nine. In other words, three made to look as if it's a nine. You know, the number system, the rating, one to ten. Of course, now we're more used to one to five with products. So you could say maybe a two dressed up as a five. Well, today, we're first going to try and get an idea of what quality means. How much work actually goes into a quality product? We're going to touch on that. And then we're going to try and come up with some ways to help you figure out whether it's a three dressed up as a nine or really a nine. Today I'm speaking with Warren Milner. Now, Warren has worked in the motorcycle industry for a very long time. He worked extensively at Honda Canada in many capacities, but he spent much of his time in product planning, research, and development for new models at Honda. Now, you may recognize him from our show before. He was on an episode we did about the DCT transmission with the Africa Twin, and another one where we talked about how the internet shapes the things we buy. I think we'll put the links uh, to those two episodes in the show notes for this one. Well, we caught up with Warren on a cold February day at Brooklyn Motorcycle in Pickering, Ontario, Canada. Okay, my name is Warren Milner, and I uh, I currently live in uh, Toronto and uh, work for uh, Brooklyn Cycle as a technician, but uh, used to work for Honda. I was at Honda for 30 years in various uh, uh, areas of responsibility, but most of them sort of from a technical, uh, you know, R&D point of view. Warren, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Uh, listeners will probably recognize your voice from our DTC episode where you talked all <laughs> about that. I mean, that was yeah. that was quite popular. We also talked about um, something that's a little bit of a crossover of what we're going to talk about today was we, we talked about how um, things, how the internet shapes things for us mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. today. But what we're talking about today is quality, really, you know, and, you know, it's, it's getting, it's getting more and more difficult, I find, to really figure out what is real and what isn't on the internet. I, I think this is sort of something that society's running into on many, many levels. 
mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to determine, you know, what is the real item and, and what isn't. But but first, let's dig into quality here a little bit, because I, I want to talk, I know you, you told me a long time ago when we were talking one time, you mentioned a story about quality and what, and what kind of surprised you with Honda. That was the ATV story. Do you remember that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can you tell that story? Okay. Well, you know, the, the thing with quality is, you know, people... People seem to confuse quality with componentry. So, you know, this bike has high-end componentry or this bike has nice paint or this bike has, you know, Brembo brakes or this bike has Olin suspension and, and therefore it has quality. But realistically, you know, and again, just sort of from my experience, quality in, in motorcycles and ATVs comes from testing. The, the difference between one manufacturer and another manufacturer and their level of quality is simply more than anything else based on how much testing and research was done on the product prior to release. So once it reaches the prototype stage and then you know, is tested and tested and tested in as many different scenarios as they can think, you know, and adjusted and changed and modified until it's sort of ready for production. That is the real expense in motorcycle manufacturing. You know, that's probably the biggest expense in bringing a product to market is that sort of fine tuning of it after the initial prototype has been, you know, designed mostly by computer, and then, you know, the testing and the fine-tuning of that to make sure that it actually works in the real world and that, you know, the computer's calculations were correct. So uh, the, the the ATV story that I have that sort of demonstrates this is that uh, we had a situation in Canada, this is going back a few years now, where we had uh, an ATV, a 500cc ATV, that was a very good ATV, very reliable, very durable, very well-received, very well-liked. But the customers were complaining that it wasn't comfortable, that this the suspension was uh, sort of inappropriate, let's say, for Canadian use, and they found it was very uncomfortable compared to competitors. How did they get that feedback from the customers, and, and what were they saying about being uncomfortable? Well, of course, in the industry, as you know, in Canada especially, there many of the dealers are multi-line. And so, you know, the dealers were feeding it back to us that customers were saying such and such a brand is so much more comfortable. And, you know, they're Honda people. They want to ride a Honda, but, you know, their buddies have a whatever. And it's so much more comfortable than the Honda that they're thinking of, of changing to, mm-hmm. you know, this other brand as much as they like Honda. So... You know, we started sort of an investigation into it and found that the number one uh, unit that they were comparing the Honda to was Polaris. And that the Polaris 500 was, uh, by, you know, the customers and the dealers reckoning, quite a bit more comfortable than the Honda in terms of suspension action. And that uh, it wasn't perhaps as reliable as the Honda or as durable as the Honda, which is what the Honda people wanted. But there was no question it was more comfortable. So we got one. We got, you know, one Yamaha, one Arctic Cat, one Polaris, you know, one and, and sort of all the major competitors. And we went out to test them and found that indeed, you know, 
the Polaris was by far the most comfortable and uh, the Honda was, if not the least comfortable, certainly <laughs> at the bottom of the list. So we, uh, so I went to our Japanese uh, uh, liaison uh, person and said, you know, we have this problem and it's starting to affect sales. And as many, as much as customers, Honda customers really like Honda quality and durability and reliability and that sort of thing, you know, they're not willing to, to uh, accept this level of comfort and, you know, we're going to start losing sales. So uh, the guy said, yeah, well, you know, I'll take it to Japan, but surely it can't be that bad. And I said, well, I've tested it myself and it is that bad. And I said, you know, I can, I can take you out and demonstrate it for you and sort of show you, you know, what we're talking about. And he says, well, how long is that going to take? I mean, you know, we have to go somewhere and we have to, I said, in a hundred yards, it's noticeable. I said, we can do it in the parking lot at Honda and you'll, and you'll notice the difference right away. So I said, uh, so he said, okay, okay, fair enough. Let's, let's go for a ride. So I, I took him to an off-road riding area and uh, we were riding and yeah, you know, you understand he's a little bit biased towards Honda. So we, we go riding and we rode for probably about half an hour and I pulled over and I stopped and I said, okay, if we, if we, let's say this is the end of a very long day and you're really tired and sore and we had to head back to the truck now, which of these two machines would you prefer to ride back on? Because we'd been sort of swapping back and forth all day. And he said, okay, okay, you've made your point. There's no question that Polaris is, is you know, more comfortable. And and he was not an ATV guy at all. Like he had did probably the first time he'd ever ridden ATV. So he said, you know, he was confused as to how this could happen. Like, you know, how did this happen? And I said, well, I, I can tell you why it happened is that the Canadian ATV specification is set by American Honda. We don't do suspension testing, suspension R&D in Canada. You know, it's done for us by American Honda and we get the American unit. So he says, well, why would that change things? And I said, well, because American Honda is based in California and a lot of their riding there is done in the desert. You know, suspension action is requirements are a lot different for riding in sand than riding in rocky root covered trails in Canada. I said, I bet you if you ask dealers in, you know, Michigan or, you know, the northern states, they'd have the same complaints that we do. So he said, well, I'm going to contact R&D in Japan and just find out, you know, if there's anything to this story. So he contacted R&D and they said, well, no, that can't be true. You know, American Honda knows what they're doing. And, you know, I'm sure that they've, you know, talked to their um, northern states and they must be aware of this situation. So I said to the guy, all right, well, talk to your Japanese guy at American Honda and ask him how much uh, input they're getting from dealers in the northern states as the comfort of this machine. And he said, well, they have very similar complaints to Canada. Hmm. So I said, okay, well, you know, is there anything we can do about this? So R&D came, I sent a team over from Japan to, I think, to be honest, to 
uh, you know, as a as a sort of PR move. They, they didn't really believe the story at that point. You know, they were kind of like, well, I suppose, you know, these guys seem to take this quite seriously. We better go and listen to them and make a show of support, you know. Right. So they sent a team over, five guys, and uh, we rented a, a resort in uh, northern Quebec that was right on the trail system. And we stayed there for two days and went trail riding and we had all of the competitors and the Hondas. And, you know, to a man, they all agreed that you know they had a real problem here. And they, they were actually quite confused by this as to how could this have occurred? I mean, they built the bike to the spec that has been requested and they can't imagine why the requested spec was so far out from reality kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I told them the story, you know, about the desert in California and that, you know, in sand, it's a whole different arrangement. And so uh, I said, you know, what are the chances that we can get, you know, an alternate suspension setup for Canada? And they said, well, you know, you know, you know, if American Honda wants it and there's enough volume there to justify it, I suppose we could do it. But I tell you what, we'll send a team over from Showa, who are the suspension manufacturers for Honda. And, uh, you know, I'll let them have a look at it and uh, we'll, we'll go with their recommendation. So I said, OK, that's that's great. So they sent a team over from Showa and we were uh, stationed at the same resort in northern Quebec for the better part of a month. And we had all of the competitors machines there and we had the, this Honda and what we did is we we rode all day, every day on as many different types of terrain as we could. And they just had a computer that measured everything that was going on. Each guy had a backpack on, you know, with a computer in it that was uh, connected to, you know, the suspension arms measuring flex and, you know, stroke of the shocks and, you know, how many times it hit the bump stop and, you know, everything that they could think of. And then they came back and at the end of the day, we'd all sit around the table and we'd discuss, you know, what we liked about which machine and which which parts were good and which parts were bad and so on. Because, of course, you know, there's more to suspension than just comfort. You know, you don't want the machine to handle poorly, but be very comfortable. You know, you want it to be stable and safe and and, and comfortable. So we, we had a lot of discussion and eventually they... Uh, they were actually blown away. They they said, wow, we, we had no idea. Of course, they'd never ridden in Canada. They'd never ridden in the northern states. So they said, we had no idea that this is what ATVs were used for in, in these more northern climbs. And uh, yes, we, we totally agree with you that the suspension isn't uh, set right. So uh, we are going to see what we can do. What's the best we can do to, to get you a, a good setup? So for the rest of the time that we were there, they were trying different shocks, different springs, different settings, different geometry as much as they could with the existing design and ended up with a significantly improved uh, ride and not quite as good as the Polaris. But they said that that was necessary because they didn't like the way the Polaris handled and they didn't feel it was as stable as the Honda. So they weren't willing to go that far. But it was, you know, sort of within 10% of the Polaris in, in terms of comfort and in their mind, better handling, more stable. So, you know, would we accept this level? And I said, yes, this is perfect. You know, like we, if we can get this setting, this would be just absolutely fantastic. 
And they said, all right, well, what we're going to do is invite American Honda to come up and test it and, you know, try and get their buy-in and then we can change the model. So American Honda came up and uh, tried it and said that, yes, they could see that in these conditions, this setup is better, but they don't think that this is going to work well for all of the U.S. and they'd rather just stay with the design they had. So, and you know, there was a little bit of sort of inter-distributor uh, inter rivalry going on there. You know, how would Canada have come up with this and they didn't kind of thing. So there was a little bit of that going on. But uh, so Japan said, all right, well, you know, uh, all right, we'll see what we can do for Canada then. So you're out then. You don't, you don't want to, to do this. And they said, no, we're, we're out. So the guy said, okay. Now, Canada is a fairly big ATV market in its own right for Japan. So they said, all right, look, we, we can build this, uh, this, this suspension setup for Canada, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's expensive and it's going to take a while. And I said, well, why is it going to take a while? We, we already know the setting, right? We, we know exactly what we need to do now. So you need to uh, just build these shocks and springs and, and suspension arms and what have you, meaning we, we know what we want now, right? So mm -hmm. the guy said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, you know, what we need to do is we need to put these parts into mass production, but, but that isn't the cost. The cost is we need to, to test it. So I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I said, didn't we just do that? <laughs> and he said, no, no, you, you see, changing anything on the machine may have an impact on something else. So he said, for example, you know, we've made the suspension softer now. It'll bottom more frequently. So is that going to result in swing arm weld fractures or frame flex fractures or, you know, increased risk of tire punctures or it could affect any number of other things that you don't really consider connected to suspension comfort, but, but directly are. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, so, so what do we need to do? So he said, well, the, the very shortest uh, test period that they can accept and, and will sort of pass R&D requirements is that the machine has to be ridden off-road for 16,000 kilometers and, and, and suffer no failures. <laughs> basically and uh, and it has to be the same machine and it has to be very carefully monitored you know we can't just say we did it it has to be overseen by R&D and, and you know tested in appropriate conditions and so we said uh, okay so how, how, how do we do that I mean we, we need this now and he said, well, you know, we can, and this was sort of late summer by this point. And he said, well, we can, we can send a team and uh, to, to oversee it, but you, you'll have to find the location and you'll have to find the riders uh, to, to ride it. And, you know, as fast as they can do 16,000 kilometers is how fast it'll take to to get the test done and, you know, all the computer simulations run and assuming we don't run into a problem during that testing, then, then we can go into mass production. So the faster you can set that up, the better. So 
we said, okay, well, let's see what we can do. So we, again, rented a place in Quebec that we operate on the trail system. And we hired a team of riders. And by this time, it was heading into winter. And it was snow on the ground. And, uh, and it was cold out. So we had to rotate the riders because they couldn't stay in the cold for too long. <laughs> and we just rode the machine 24 hours a day with seven different riders sort of rotating through, you know, on the machine. And the R&D team analyzing the results and the results. And it, it, it took weeks to, to do this, just running constantly. And because, of course, you know, trail speeds are quite low, especially if it's a rough trail. And, and that's what they, they did. And uh, and eventually we sort of got to the end of the testing and they said, OK, well, everything is OK now. You know, they've made a couple of minor modifications, but everything is OK now. You know, we can go into mass production. And... Uh, so from a marketing point of view, we, we wanted to make sure that the public knew that this was a change and that, and that the, the changes were related directly to making it a better trail riding machine. So we, we sort of coined the name uh, Canadian Trail Edition and we had our own, you know, uh, decals made up and so on to identify it as a Canadian Trail Edition and we had the shock springs painted red instead of black to again make them sort of visibly different to, to the way it had been before and uh, uh, put it in the market and it uh, immediately, almost immediately was rated ATV of the year by you know the ATV publications here and uh, went on to become the best-selling ATV in Canada huh. and Americans were streaming over the border now from the northern states to buy the suspension systems to put on American ATVs. And so eventually American Honda, you know, maybe a couple of years later, reluctantly agreed to to sort of offer that suspension package as well in the U.S. So but but again, it sort of shows you that uh, the, the, the process is not nearly as, as simple as it sounds. And, you know, the cost to, to Honda Canada of doing this, of course, was, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because, you know, we kept renting all these places and hiring all these riders and, you know, running the machine constantly. And and this is just a small part. I mean, this is a machine that was already finished development. And this is just a change in sort of one aspect of its of its performance, you know. And, and Japan were so... Uh, uh, sort of committed to this project and so uh, I think to some extent embarrassed by the fact that they had sort of missed the mark so much that when they went back to Japan, they used the computer uh, uh, data that they had gathered to build a test track in Japan that simulated Canadian conditions. And every future ATV that was coming to Canada would be run through this test track to make sure that it now sort of also met Canadian requirements as best wow. as can happen. And then we developed, a, a, the, the first machine was a 500 and then sort of right on the heels of that, we developed a 400, uh, sort of using the same principle. And uh, and again, you know, again, the cost to Japan would have been high. They sent teams here for months at a time, you know, and they built this test track in Japan. So, and again, this is just one small aspect of of you know to, to show what's in, involved in the whole 
process. You know, it's 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 not as simple as people think. Well, we just bolt on a set of softer shocks and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's what you would think. It should be a fairly simple thing. That, that's yeah. incredible, though. And and yeah. they take that data, then what they picked up from the machine going over the bumps here, and then use that sort of reverse engineering yeah, it, make a trail. It, exactly. Wow. Yeah, in Japan. Yeah. Uh, that, that shows incredible dedication by a company. Yes, by, but, by, w- w- yes, but again, that's what I'm saying. You see, that that is where rail quality comes from, is that sort of commitment to to the market and to the the, the, the product, not just a, a simple Band-Aid fix where, you know, okay, we'll put some softer shocks on and, you know, if stuff starts failing, well, then you guys will have to worry about that. That's your problem. You know, they were very committed right from the beginning that, you know, it had to be, it had to be Honda, you know, it had to be Honda quality. Honda had to maintain what they felt was, you know, their, their level of quality. And, uh, you know, I can, I can give you a couple of other examples of, of motorcycle uh, related. Uh, one was when uh, CBR 1100XX, I don't know if you remember that machine, when it was coming out, uh, Japan invited us to uh, come over to Japan and uh, for testing of a new product, is all they said. New high-speed uh, performance bike. And we said, okay. And uh, But they didn't tell us anything more. It was very secret at the time. So we went over. And at the time, the Kawasaki ZX-10 was the fastest bike in the world, highest top speed bike in the world. And, you know, at the sort of top of that, category of, of motorcycles and so they were going to build a bike to, to, to beat that basically so they took us over and we, we went into the meeting room and they were showing us all the, the drawings of the bike and the computer you know generated engineering drawings and so on to say this is what it's going to look like and this is how much horsepower it'll have and this is what its wheelbase will be and so on and so forth and now we're going to go to the test track because we want to show you something uh, really special about this bike. And so we said, okay. So we went to their test track is in a place called Toshigi and it's a, a, a banked oval, you know, looks a, a bit like a giant NASCAR track. And uh, there's sort of three lanes on it, depending on the steepness of the bank. And if you're going up to 100 miles an hour, you go in, in this lane. And if you're going up to 150 miles an hour, you go in this lane. If you go in 200 or more, you, you go in this third lane. And they told us they wanted us to, to start out slowly, but slowly work our way up the bank until we were doing top speed. And we said, okay. So we were coming out, you know, with our leathers and everything. And everybody's all excited to ride this new bike. And when we get out there, it's a ZX-10 we're going to ride, the Kawasaki. And I thought, mm, that's kind of odd. And well, I guess they're going to let us ride this first to, to show us how much better their bike is. So we all go out and we, we get on this Kawasaki and we, uh, we get going and we, we get up. And, and when you get up, you know, down close to 200 miles an hour, the, the bike felt a little unstable. You know, it, it was weaving. It was hard to hold it in a straight line. It didn't feel, it didn't feel dangerous, but it didn't really feel planted and secure, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we all came in and they said, well, what do you think? And we told them that. They said, well, you know, most customers never ride that fast. You know, it's more about bragging rights than actually people are riding 200 miles an hour on the street, you know. So uh, they said, but uh, now we want you to to try ours. And we said, okay. So they brought out another ZX-10. 
right? So I thought, you know, this is kind of odd. And try this one. So we went for a ride and it was way, way, way better. Like way, way, way nicer and much more stable and much more planted and felt much more sort of confidence inspiring at anything over probably about 130, 140 kilometers an hour. And so we came back in and we said, you know, that's really amazing. What did you guys do to to improve it this much? And the guy said, it's the front fender. He said the, the Kawasaki front fender is like a typical sport bike fender, which is not really designed to be part of the aerodynamic uh, package per se. And that by integrating the front fender into the aerodynamic package, they were able to create a, a more stable uh, you know, motorcycle. So just that one change. Yeah. And so now we looked at the front fender, we hadn't noticed it before and it was completely different. You, you know, it was a completely different, uh, concept, but just that one change made, uh, you know, a, a significant difference in, in the bike, you know? And so, you know, and, and then as those sort of high-speed bikes, the Hayabusa and then the ZX-12 and all of those bikes sort of evolved in that direction, they all eventually ended up with a fender, something like that, you know what I mean? But it was, it, it just shows how something as small as that, that again, you or I look at it and go, well, what difference can that really make? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, made, made such a huge, huge difference. And... uh uh, I'll give you one final example because I think this is maybe the best one. Is uh, when they were building the VTR 1000 uh, sport bike. Uh, so at the time, uh, Ducati had the 916 uh, sport bike, and it was very, very uh, well uh, regarded. You know, the press loved it. You know, the public loved it. It was fabulous looking bike very high performance. It was winning in World Superbike. You know, it, it was just the, the be-all and the end-all of high-performance sport bikes at the time. And Honda, who had always traditionally built inline fours, were going to build their first sort of serious V-twin sport bike. So they were going to build this VTR 1000. And again, they invited us to Japan to... uh learn about it and learn the concept and, and understand what it was they were trying to achieve. So we, we go into the meeting room and on the wall, they have the blueprint, the life-size blueprint of the bike. And all the specs are written on it. You know, wheelbase, fork, angle, rake, trail, you know, seat height, handlebar width. All the specs are all written on this chart and it's life-size, you know, on the wall. And so they invite us over to look at it, you know, and it looks very nice and very exciting and so we're all really excited and uh, so I'm looking at it and the only thing that kind of struck me as a little odd was the wheelbase seemed longer than current status for sport bikes so so I'm looking at it and I'm just making sure I'm not missing something here and I went to the guy and I said you know, the wheelbase looks a little long for a sport bike. I mean, most sport bikes at the time were like 54, you know, 55 inches. And this was like closer to 57, right? And it's kind of, kind of seems like, you know, you're, you're going against the current thinking in, in, in sport bike, you know. And uh, the guy said, uh, well, uh it, 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 this is the the wheelbase has to be this long, and I go well. Why? And he says, well, because it's a V twin. 
And I say, well, well what, what difference does that make? And he says, well, because it's a V-twin, it has uh, big power pulses. You know, the engine's power pulses come in big, big pushes of, of the crankshaft. And I said, yeah. And he says, so because of that, you know, it puts a lot of strain on the transmission. I go, okay. So he says, so the transmission has to have big gears to, to absorb that power and, and be durable. I said, okay. <laughs> so he says, uh, so big gears means big crankcase. Big crankcase is long. Crankcase has to fit in between the two wheels because, you know, the front, the front tire, you know, is going to hit the front of the engine and, you know, the swing arm needs clearance behind the engine. And so we couldn't make the wheelbase any shorter than this. So I say, well, why is the Ducati wheelbase shorter then? How, how, how can they do it? Or, or, or is their engineering better than yours? Like, uh, how, how can they do this? And he said, no, no, uh, the, the Ducati transmission is not strong enough. And I go, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, Honda has a minimum standard for transmission durability. It has to last this many miles, you know, and, and this many years. And if they built the Ducati transmission, it, it, it wouldn't last that long. <laughs> so I said, well, well, how long will, will the Honda transmission last you without needing anything? And he says, well, at least 200,000 K. And I said, yeah, but guys who buy bikes like this <laughs> probably will never see 200,000 K. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? So, you know, a bike like this and its usable life is probably going to do 30,000, 40,000 K. I said, how many K do you think that the Ducati transmission would go? And the guy says, well, if the guy's abusing it, like if he's racing it or something, he said, probably less than 20,000. So I said, so... So in the life of the Ducati, he may need some transmission work once. And the Honda will never need any transmission work. Is it worth that, you think? Like, is that not an engineering decision that should be rethought? And he said, no, it's a, it's a Honda standard. It's, it's, they can't, no matter what they want to do, they can't change that. That is a cast in stone Honda standard that they have to meet. And as a result, the wheelbase is going to be too long and is going to be long. And I said, okay, so... So it'll never be as good as the uh, Ducati then. And he says, no, no, well, we've made other changes to the geometry and the handling. And we think you'll be surprised that it'll handle just as good as the, the Ducati. And, you know, we're going to go out to the test track now and, and, and you can try them. So we go to the test track and they didn't have this new bike there. Again, it was kind of this weird thing. They had the Ducati there, but they had a, a VFR 800 which, again, was not the 1000. It was a, a V4 and a Honda. And uh, he said, you know, we want you to try these two bikes on this racetrack back-to-back for handling. So I said, well, this, uh, th- this isn't your new bike. And he said, no, no, but we've adjusted this bike to be exactly the same dimensions, chassis-wise, same wheelbase, same brake, same trail, same weight, same everything as, as the new bike. So... The handling will be very similar. It may not be identical, but it'll be very similar. And I said, yeah, but this is a V4 and, and, and not a, a V-twin. He says, yes, but we, we converted it so that two pistons come up and down together and, and fire together. So it'll, it'll feel exactly like a twin. You're, you're talking the, VF, it, it, the VFR 800 compared to this new 1000 they're making. Yeah, yeah. So he says it'll feel just like a twin because it, it's firing, you know, 
two cylinders together and two cylinders together, so it'll be simulate power pulses would be very similar to the to the twins. So I said, okay. So we went out and rode them, and it handled just as good as the Ducati. I felt anyway. So I came back to the guy and I said, yeah, okay, I I I, I agree with you. You've do, you've done a really good job. It handles really well. You don't notice a longer wheelbase. Really, it turns really well, and so on and so forth. So I, I guess you guys are on the right track. And he says, uh, I said, I, I do have a, a, a question, though, that's a little weird. And he says, okay. I said, I noticed that your Ducati doesn't have the exhaust under the seat. I said, you know, one of the 916's big claims to fame is the exhaust is under the seat. And, you know, that's not been done before. And it looks really cool. And and yours isn't. You just have low pipes, you know, like a like a normal sport bike. And I said, "Is that how the 916 is sold in Japan? Is it is it different to the rest of the world?" And uh, he says, uh, uh, "No, no, no. That's not. That's not. They don't come like that in Japan. In Japan, they have the exhaust under the seat." So I said, "So why did this bike have the low exhaust?" And he said, "Well." the exhaust under the seat doesn't meet uh, sound emissions anywhere in the world. So we didn't think it was fair that we would have to compare our bike to their bike that doesn't actually meet sound emissions. So I said, well, how does Ducati get away with that? And he says, well, they're very small manufacturers, so nobody pays attention. They just build it that way and hope they don't get caught, basically, he says, <laughs> you know, because they're such a small manufacturer and, you know, it's an exotic, it's not really on the radar of, of the enforcement people. And he says that, but it doesn't uh, meet the sound restrictions. So, so we didn't think it was fair to, to test our bike, which, which has to meet because we're a volume manufacturer and are obviously going to be scrutinized. And uh, so we, we built our own exhaust system, to, to uh, you know, to be to be more fair to our testers. So I said, "Oh, okay." And uh, what's the result of your uh, your new exhaust? He says, "I said, does it would it meet sound emissions?" And he says, "Oh, yes, Warrenson, and and plus two horsepower." <laughs> so <laughs> again, he was very proud of this, you know. But again, it just shows you the 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 level and the depth that they will go to to uh, thoroughly you know, investigate and uh, confirm in their minds that something will sort of meet their standard and will be the right thing in the end. And, and you know, part of the problem with that approach and, and one of the things I think, to be honest, that Honda suffers from is the, the, the public don't see that. So all they're going to see is wheelbase is too long. <laughs> yeah. you, you see what I mean? Like I did, you know, if, if they're reading a magazine shootout, you know, that's what's going to stand out is, you know, because they don't get any of that backstory, you know, they, all they see is the, the, the final spec and, and so much of, of motorcycling is very competitive industry has become about winning that magazine test, you know, which, which one has the most horsepower, which one has the lightest weight, which one, you know, da, 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 mm -hmm. has become the measuring stick because, again, most people will never use the performance these bikes have or, or run them long enough to run into mechanical issues, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. Was that part of the reason that they brought out the, uh, there was a little bit of a film series with the Africa Twin, wasn't there, where they talked yeah, about yeah. the design? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And same thing. 
years and years and people think it's an easy thing you know years and years and years it takes to to bring one of these bikes to market and i mean over and above you know you have your own sort of engineering challenges in building any machine then there's all the compliance issues you know it has to be quiet and it has to meet emissions and it has to do all of these things as well and it has to be safe and it has to be durable and it has to be you know stylish and you know there has to be a marketing story and there's a lot to it. So, you know, you get things, you, we used to get this all the time at, at bike shows when I worked for Honda, you know, somebody would come up and say, you know, you guys are all a bunch of idiots. If, if you just took that engine from that bike and put it in that <laughs> chassis with that suspension, you guys, you, you, you wouldn't be able to build them fast enough. You know, you'd sell out overnight. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's not that simple. You know, again, it's it's years and years and years of testing to, to, to build the first one, you know, after that, it, it's a little bit easier. But to build the first one, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of testing that goes on. And and different manufacturers sort of have different approaches to that and, and, and apply different levels of importance to that, you know. And some manufacturers, of course, they can set at a much cheaper price if they cut short the testing, you know, and then they, they'll handle it through warranty or, you know, just, hope that the machine doesn't end up lasting long enough to, to <laughs> require that repair, you, mm-hmm. you know? So th- there's different approaches to the whole uh, sort of quality issue. But none of that's visible to the public, you see? That's, that's the problem, really. We're going to take a quick break to uh, tell you about a couple of things, but stay with us because we've got a lot more to talk about. There's a lot more coming up. Why do we like cruise control on cars and trucks? Well, obviously, so you can relax on the long stretch. Give your foot a a rest from that semi-static stiff position, you know, where you're sitting in there holding that same position. On the motorcycle, a more common thing is the throttle lock because not many bikes come with a cruise control. Now, a throttle lock is obviously not a cruise control. It merely holds the throttle in position, whatever you set it at. So it kind of does the same thing as a car. You can relax a bit, focus on other parts of the ride. Now, if you have an Atlas throttle lock, you'll enjoy the fact that with the Atlas, you can adjust your throttle. And the reason you want to adjust your throttle is because if you come to a hill, uh, either going up or going down, your speed is going to change because your throttle's set at a set position. So as you climb the hill, your, your bike's going to slow down. As you go down the hill, your bike's going to speed up. If you want to adjust for that with the Atlas throttle lock, all you do is, is grab your throttle and give it a little twist in either direction. And it holds it, it allows you to twist it easily, and it holds it at that new position. That's key. Now, the Alice Throttle Lock is a real piece of engineering, I think. It's got two buttons on it, one for engage, other for disengage. They both have a firm, positive feel. The whole unit feels very high quality. But more importantly, it does exactly what it's supposed to do, and it does it really well. I've got one on my bike and it really does change the way you ride because it's just so predictable. And that's what you want when it comes to something like this. You want something high quality and predictable. It needs to do exactly what you want it to do when you want it to do it. The company is Atlas Throttle Lock. Their website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. You know, when your bike was made at the manufacturer level, it wasn't made for you in particular. It was made for the masses. And anytime you make things for the masses, you have to make compromises. Compromises in the cost of the parts that you're putting on and what those parts are designed to do. 
if you want to ride your bike like an adventure bike, a real adventure bike, there's some key components that if you change them, they're going to enhance your ability to control your machine and make it do the things that, well, probably at the factory they don't expect most people to do. And one of those is your foot pegs. IMS Products makes their foot pegs designed specifically for adventure riding. They use a cast 17-4 stainless steel. They heat treat it. And aside from being incredibly tough, they're beautifully designed for adventure bikes and your style of riding to keep your feet planted and allow you that extra leverage to control your bike at the times that you really need to do it. You want a product like this to work so that you forget that it's there. And that's what the IMS Products foot pegs do. I have them on my bike as well. Check out what they've got. IMSproducts.com is the website. And anytime you're dealing with them, email or otherwise, throw in there, you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. And what I'm getting from what you're saying here is that there's two things there. There's there's standards. First of all, Honda has these really high standards, um, mm-hmm. as I imagine a lot of the, the top manufacturers do, that they will not bend on. And then yeah. then the testing that they won't bend on. And, and as you're talking, I know we talked about this before a little bit, but it, it does sort of make you think about all this testing going to something like this. That The difference you described in that story about the front fender and how we'll slap a, a, a bolt-on extra extended windshield <laughs> on the bike when we yeah, buy it. Well, well. Well, exactly. And, you know, that's the terrifying thing to me about the the internet is there's so much sort of, uh, for want of a better term, encouragement on the internet to do your own work and make your own parts and do your own modifications with no regard whatsoever to whether how it's going to affect the machine and whether the guy is actually competent or, or, or capable of doing this kind of thing, you know? Or is and anybody, really? I mean, yeah, does exactly. anyone have the resources? I, I, exactly, and that's the thing. And again, you know, I I have almost got to the point I don't want to give advice on the web because you're just another guy. The guy has no reason to listen to you more than somebody else. He doesn't mm-hmm. know who you are. So, so you know, you tell the guy, you know, this is the, the thing, and, and this is coming from years and years and years of experience working with R&D and being a mechanic, and I'm telling you this is the thing to do. And, you know, his next-door neighbor who, you know, has ridden for six months will tell him, no, that's nonsense, you need to do this instead, and the guy will do that. Mm-hmm. Because there's no way for him to know, you know, who is giving him, as you said, who is giving him good advice and who is giving him bad advice. It's just advice that's out there. And we we see things, you know, again, things like guys converting tube-type tires to tubeless tires. And again, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's not something that somebody with no experience and no knowledge, you know, who struggles to change a tire shouldn't be modifying something. Because, you know, as we like to say, you know, if, if you make a mistake playing around with your car, you know, the, the risk is it's likely to be very inconvenient because you could break down in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, if you, if you mess up something on your motorcycle, it could kill you. Mm. You know what I mean? Motorcycles are, are you know, are risky enough as it is. A failure on a motorcycle, you know, almost any failure on a motorcycle can be life-threatening. You know, like a, a tire blowing out or, you know, a suspension collapse or, you know, something coming loose or the engine stalling or hiccuping at the wrong moment or, you know. And there's so many of these things that guys just go in and do and... 
with no thought whatsoever, you know, as to what this may do down the road, you know. Mm-hmm. And we see it, oh, I bet you, 30 times a year at, at Brooklyn, we'll see a bike come in that some guys bolted something to that is like right on the ragged edge of causing a catastrophic failure. And, and the guy's blissfully unaware you know, and you say to the guy, you can't do stuff like this. You can't bolt something to that. You know, you can't. This this could kill you if you do this, you know. And, you know, and again, sometimes stupid little things, you know. Well, I wanted uh, shorty brake levers on my bike. So I found ones from a ZX-6 will actually work on a CBR 600. So I bolted those on. And I'm like, yeah, I know they look identical and and the brakes are actually made by the same company, but the Honda <laughs> lever has is just two millimeters shorter in this one dimension. And what you've done now is your front brake is going to be on all the time, just very slightly, but it's going to be dragging all the time. And eventually, that causes the brake fluid to heat up, and then the brake fluid expands, and it puts the brake on harder and harder and harder, and eventually, it's going to lock that front wheel. And you 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 can't do stuff like this, you know. But and again, it sounds like a very simple thing, you know. I, I just bought a front brake lever, and it was anodized red and looked pretty, so I, I bought one from China and I I put it on my bike because Joe Blow on the internet told me this is a the hot setup, you know, and. It, it's really terrifying some of the modifications, as you said, guys, putting on all kinds of wind management, windscreens and add-ons and so on and so forth that may work, you know, and some of them have had testing done by the manufacturer of the product, but many of them haven't. And many of them are these homemade remedies, you know, bolt this on here. And again, we see it all the time, and I can almost predict it sometimes. And we have a saying at, at, at Brooklyn that uh, if somebody comes in complaining about something, the first thing you do is look for the parts that that don't belong there. You know, you know what what parts have been bolted to this Honda that weren't made by Honda? Start mm-hmm. there, right? Because that's likely to be the cause of the problem. And you see it all the time on the the web, you know stupid Kawasaki did this and totally, you know, they don't know what they're doing and the bike doesn't work. And it turns out the guy bolted something to the part and then the part failed. But right. that wasn't Kawasaki's failure. Yeah, and I remember seeing a video on, I think it was Helge Peterson, the video of, of one of his trips or something. And they had some bike failures, but every bike failure that I saw in the film was because of something the customer did to modify their bike to, to make it better for what they were doing. It was, yeah, it was real exactly. irony. And, Exactly. And, and the expression that really pisses me off is when you hear a guy saying, yeah, I'm looking to upgrade my so-and-so, right? And I'm thinking, what makes you think it's an upgrade? <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaning it's a change. If you said, I'd like to change my so-and-so, okay. But the term upgrade implies you're better off after. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you may be better off in one aspect. You may be worse off in 10 others that you aren't even aware of. Yeah. You know, so the, the latest one, for example, I saw a guy on the forum. He's putting a, a Brembo brake kit on his Africa Twin. So it comes with disc calipers and, and a master cylinder. And so I don't know what that's worth. I'm going to say it's probably four grand, you know, to, 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 to buy those components and put them on an Africa Twin. And I'm thinking, and I don't doubt at all 
at all, he'll have more break than he had before, meaning it'll be a, a more powerful break and it'll have more initial bite and it'll be a, a stronger uh, breaking setup. It'll be more like a, like a, you know, super sport bike than a, than a adventure bike. And I'm thinking, but do you have any idea how much time Honda put into designing the brakes of the Africa Twin to make sure that they would work well on road and they'd work well off road and they'd work well in the mud and they'd work well when they're covered in sand and they'd work well after you've been to the car wash and, you know, they'd last for a reasonable length of time. And, and Brembo did none of that. You know, not that Brembo brakes aren't great. They're fabulous brakes among the best in the world. But they haven't been tested on an Africa Twin to the level that Honda's Africa Twin brakes were tested on the Africa Twin. Well, so, and that could be a marketing thing, couldn't it? Because like you're saying, Honda's not yeah. letting people know what goes yeah. into it. But but there are times when when a change could be worthwhile. I'm, I'm thinking of the old KLR650 with, with a really weak front brake. And they, yeah. have, they have kits where you can get a, a larger uh, diameter it, rotor it, for it. Exactly. So, so that's my point. Some of these mods work well. Some of them work terribly. Some Most are somewhere in between. And you, if you're addressing a specific uh, shortcoming, great. You, you, you know what I mean? That's what, that's what modification is for, mm-hmm. is to address a specific shortcoming. But you do need to be aware while you're doing that, that you may be creating some other shortcomings. Sure. You know? Yeah, you, you add so, better brakes to the KLR650, for instance, and the, and the front end is going to collapse more as you get yeah. on the brakes hard. And that's yeah, all yeah. going to change everything. Exactly. So as an example, I'll give you another example. Africa Twins, guys are complaining that the, the wheel bearing on the, on the uh, disc side of the bike is, uh, is uh, wearing out too quickly. They're having to change them 20,000K, 30,000K, like sooner than they would have expected that they would have to change them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, Honda didn't know what they were doing and Honda used cheap bearings and I want to upgrade you know, and who can tell me what bearing I should use instead of the, you know, cheap shit Honda used. And, uh, and you know, guys, oh, you got to use, you know, brand A or brand Y, you know, absolutely. Everybody knows the best bearings in the world, you know. And uh, I'm thinking, yeah, well, yes, but the reason that bearing is failing is because the guy is using his rear brake. His rear brake is heating up the hub. And the hub is melting the grease in the bearing. And that's why the bearing is failing. It's not because it's a bad bearing. It's the same bearing Mm -hmm. Honda uses on any number of models. But the reason for this is a lot of guys buying these bikes are riding in motocross boots. They can't feel the rear brake pedal. They're riding the rear brake pedal a lot more than they normally would. And of course, in off-road riding, you use the rear brake a lot more than you do in street riding. So again... And again, almost continuously sometimes if you're on a really difficult trail. So shorter bearing life may be because of the usage, not because it's cheap bearing. So the fact that you've never had a wheel bearing fail before on one of your street bikes doesn't mean that this is a bad bearing necessarily. Right. You know what I mean? And you may not be improving it at all by putting in some aftermarket bearing that you think is is so much better is... You may be better to either accept that under this usage pattern, you have to change this bearing, you know, on a, a regular routine or adjust your riding style to, to allow it to cool down every now and then. But you see, nobody associates bearing wear with how much they're using the rear brake. 
No. no <laughs> you, 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 you see what I mean? They associate it with it's either a good quality bearing or it's a bad quality bearing. Mm-hmm. And, and that may not be the, the root cause of the problem in the first place. Well, and there always is the thought process that that a lot of people have that they've been t- that uh, somehow the manufacturers went really cheap on everything. Now, yeah, yeah, there it, is, exactly. there's definitely a dollar thing in there. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the manufacturers could make things yeah, much, yeah. much better. Yeah, but yeah. but like you're saying, with with, with what um, the man, the big manufacturers are putting into trying to get their their machines to be reliable on the long term, they probably pick components to the degree that will last that long term. Exactly, and yes, obviously, cost is a factor because if you know if an Africa twin costs forty thousand dollars, nobody would buy one, sure, even though it lasted forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know that that there is always that sort of trade off. But but that's the 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 engineering uh, dilemma, let's say, is that everything is a trade-off, right? Everything is this versus that, you know, speed versus reliability or speed versus durability or, you know, handling versus comfort or, you know, everything in in engineering is a trade-off. So the manufacturer tries to strike the best balance between, you know, cost is one of the issues and, and reliability and durability and, and styling and, you know, so much of modern bikes now is uh, driven by style. You know, it's become a thing now where, you know, um, you know, if my daughter is buying a, a pair of running shoes, she's buying it by brand. She's not buying it by stitch count or leather durability or sole durability. That, that, that's no longer an issue for her. You know, you know what I mean? She's what brand is on it. And if it's a good brand, she's going to assume those things have been taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't have to do that research herself. And again, it's like this guy with Brembo brakes. Brembo brakes are great brakes. They are. They're, MotoGP uses them. They're among the best brakes in the world. That doesn't mean necessarily that it'll work in every time you bolt Brembo brakes on, your bike's going to be improved. Right, <laughs> right. So when you spot it, the name, it doesn't necessarily, at least for motorcycles, now clothing, I guess, maybe it works, but... Exactly. It, it may it may throw something else off. You may have improved one thing, but created another thing. And, you know, Honda has this thing that they, they work on it. It's what they call their total control concept. I don't know if I've talked to you about this before, but what, but Honda's, uh, and, and I guess I'm, I'm not saying this is unique to Honda, but I do know that this is Honda's thing. They have this thing that they design into machines that they call the total control concept. And it applies to everything, lawnmowers, cars, you know, boat engines, everything. And, and the concept is that the most important thing in engineering and the thing that they uh, strive towards during all of this extensive, extensive testing in R&D, the thing that they're striving most towards is balance, that all the components of the bike should work together to create this sense of total control. Ergonomically, you're talking about? No, 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 functionally. So again, the, the theory being like this, if uh, if you pull the front brake lever with 10 pounds of pressure, you'll get X amount of braking. If you pull it with 20 pounds of pressure, you'll get twice that. 30 pounds of pressure, three times that. You see what I mean? It's yeah. very linear. Yeah. And then the same with the throttle. If you turn the throttle this far, you'll get this much performance. Double that, double the performance. Triple that, triple the performance, you know. If the suspension hits a bump this size, it should move this far. If it hits a bump twice as high, it should move twice as far, and so on and so forth. 
And so inherently, you have a uh, sort of connection to the machine. A predictability, predictable, for Right. Yeah. So, so even if you've never gone to the extreme, like even if you've never pulled that brake with 40 pounds of pressure, you know somewhere in your subconscious what will happen if you do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, Unlike a two-stroke in comparison, like if you took a two-stroke and you exactly. cracked the throttle. Exactly. So when that opportunity comes and you need to pull that brake to that 40 pounds of pressure, you won't hesitate because you somewhere in your mind you will know what will happen. You know, right. uh, And the expression, the, the way we used to explain this in our, in our sales training was, so let's say you have two guys and they're going to go for a ride, and it's spring, and there's a lot of sand on the road, okay? And one guy has the absolute stock motorcycle, okay? And the other guy has a bike that he's put on different shocks, and and he's got a power commander on it that improves his performance, and he's got better brakes on it, and he's put, you know, aggressive brake pads in it, and he's got, you know, a different chain and sprocket, and he's changed a number of things, but these are all common things that guys change, okay? And they go for a ride, and they come to an intersection, and there's a lot of sand in the intersection. And the first guy pulls away and uh, on the stock, on, on the modified bike, and as he feeds in the throttle, the rear tire starts to spin in the, in the gravel, and he falls down. He slides out, and he falls down. And he picks up the bike and dusts himself off and he says, you know, the goddamn government needs to do something about this sand in the road. Okay? It's sand in the road that's the problem. You know? Mm -hmm. So the next guy now on the stock bike, he goes through there and he turns the throttle and the back tire spins up and he slides, but he doesn't go down. He catches it and he goes down the road without falling. He thinks the goddamn government needs to do something about this sand on the road. I almost fell there. (laughs) neither of them will ever make the connection that one machine may have survived that because it was predictable and the guy knew what to do and the machine was forgiving and the machine allowed him to recover from that and the other one didn't. Nobody will ever make that Mm -hmm. connection. You know, and that's all the things that we change as we start, we start to modify it. Exactly. But, but what I want to, what I also want to ask you about though, is about like, when we're talking about quality here and we're talking about trying to find, trying to discover what is quality, mm-hmm. you, um, what do you look for? Like, like, let's say Warren, you're going to buy some sort of aftermarket part. Where do you start? We've already talked about the fact that the internet can be misleading. Um, those sorts of things. What's the first thing you do when you're looking for something, looking to buy something? Well, you do have to go on the internet, mm-hmm. but what you have to do, because I mean, really, that's how you research anything these days, really. So, but what you have to do is you have to try and look past the the hype of it. And you have to look past the, you know, everybody thinks that the, the uh, proof of the pudding, let's call it, is the testimonials, right? Like that, that's where you get the real information. Don't listen to the manufacturer's hype because, you know, they lie. And they do, let's face it. I mean, the manufacturers exaggerate and, you know, the brochures and the things all make everything sound wonderful. So, all right, you can't really trust when the manufacturer says this is the best possible thing that you can possibly have. Yes, they may believe it to be so, but, you know, again, there's some exaggeration there and some basically marketing there. Well, and the fact so, that marketing is the last stage after the product's been made and everything to get to the marketing <laughs> department to figure out how we're going to sell this. Exactly. So, 
So you do have to kind of go to the internet and look for experiences. But the problem is the the, the company that is going to make the, the component is going to do the same thing. They're going to make a component and tell you it's better than the stock component because that's marketing. Mm-hmm. They're not going to tell you we built something that isn't as good as the stock one. So their entire pitch is going to be how much better it is than the stock one and what the problems are with the stock one. So again, you know, there's this very, very common error made in in uh, suspension tuning where most guys who get their suspension re Evolved and resprung, end up with suspension that's too stiff. Almost all of them. And the reason is, it's in the interest of the person doing the work to make it too stiff because then it's really noticeable. Right? So you've brought your bike into the shop and you've said, you know, the stock suspension is shit. I read it on the internet. It's way too soft. It doesn't have enough damping. The springs are too light. You know, they're designed for little Japanese guys that aren't heavy enough to, to, to work the suspension. And I weigh 250 pounds and therefore I need something much better. And so what the shop does or the manufacturer does is they make something that is clearly noticeably stiffer. So what happens is the guy picks up the bike and rides with us. Oh, my God, this is so much better. I can't believe the difference between the two. But he never goes any further than that to say, so, again, did my tire slide out in the gravel when I accelerated out of that gravel-strewn corner because the rear suspension couldn't absorb any of the load? Mm-hmm. He, he said, I mean, or yeah. I, I started to go into a speed wobble because the front wheel you know, hit a bunch of stutter bumps and couldn't handle it. They, they don't make that connection. Well, it'd be, it would be almost impossible for the average person to even do the testing it, that would, it, would show it, any results. Exactly. Exactly. So they just assume this is just the way it is, you know. And again, the next step, you see this a lot on the internet. Yeah, yeah, I had my suspension done and uh, oh man, so much better. There's, there's almost no brake dive now. And brake dive is, is a, not a bad thing. People assume it's a bad thing. Brake dive is an inherent part of motorcycle handling and is designed in by the manufacturers to be at a very specific level. And yeah, the bike has almost no brake dive now. And and what I've done now is, you know, I'm going to put on a steering damper. And, and I'm thinking, there's very few modern bikes that actually need a steering dampener. If it needs a steering dampener now, it's because you've upset the balance by changing something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's, but, but it becomes a, again, it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling thing where, you know, you do this and you need to do that and you need to do that and you need to do that and you need to do that. You know, I put a pipe on it. Therefore, I had to rich up the mixture because everybody knows the bikes come running way too lean from the manufacturers, you know, to meet emissions. And so, so I went and bought, you know, uh, such and such from Joe Blow that, you know, is going to give me improved performance. And I hacksawed the snorkels off my airbox, you know, to improve the flow there. And, and again, now the guy goes trail riding with his Africa twin and, and you know, the bike doesn't handle very well. And so I should have got one of those KTMs, eh? They handle so much better. And <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah, but, but is it though? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like how much of that is your fault? How much of that is Honda's fault? You know, the, the truth probably lies somewhere in between, you know? And yeah. so it, it, it's very, um, so, so quality, I think the, the best way to, to, to discern quality is to look at stuff that people are using that they aren't bragging about. They're just using it. 
How do you, you know? know what? What? Yeah. What are what are the I don't know. Let's call them journeyman <laughs> users of this product using. What oil do they use? What what tires do they use? What you know exhaust system do they use? What brakes do they use? Because because they're not trying to sell you something and they're not trying to brag. You know, a guy who go like this guy who goes on the internet and, and buys these Brembo brakes. You know, he's going to tell everybody how fabulous they are because he spent four grand on them. He's not going to come back and say, I made a huge mistake and these things are absolutely awful. It'll never happen. So mm-hmm. now everybody who has an Africa twin is going to believe for the rest of the life of owning the Africa twin. If only I could afford those Brembo brakes, I'd have the perfect brakes. Whereas they, they may not actually be any better at all. But, well, who are the journeymen though? But, 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 well, that's what I mean. You have to look for uh, what, do, what do mechanics use, for example. You know, you have all these battles on the internet about oil, right? What do mechanics use in their own vehicles? You know, the, the, you so go to the shop. Don't read the, you know, the point of purchase things in the thing. Don't listen to the guy on the internet. Just say to the guy in the shop, if you if you're changing oil on your own bike, what oil do you use? Because here's a guy. He's not trying to sell anything. He's not trying to brag to anybody. He's not trying to, you know, he, he's just a guy who who uses it and he knows. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know what I mean? Or schools right so you know clinton smout for example i don't know if you know clinton but he's he's on the show fairly regularly okay okay so clinton you know has his school up there well here's a guy he he's a journeyman right like he he has a business that operates machinery and he therefore has to maintain that machinery what does he use what tires does he use you know what oil does he change does he care does it matter you know there's a guy who would know Right, because mm-hmm. he's a journeyman, right? He, he's not trying to, he's trying to sell his school, yes. So he'll probably tell you his school is better than somebody else's school. Absolutely. You know, that's marketing, that's his job. But in terms of what products he uses, you know, there's, there's reasons behind that, there's business reasons behind that. You know, like as, as an example, I know the, uh, on the Africa Twin website uh, forums, they tell you that the stock crash bars that the bikes come with are absolute garbage. Absolute garbage. If the bike falls over in the parking lot, you're probably going to need a fuel tank and a fairing because the, the stock bar, you know, in just a light tip over will absolutely destroy your bike. And you shouldn't even leave the dealership with them because, you know, if, if that bike falls over in the driveway, it's the end of your bike. So, but yet in, in England, the school that does training on Africa Twins uses stock bars. You know, and again, mm-hmm. it, it can't be that bad. I'm not saying there aren't better bars out there, but you can't just go by the web because some guy who has never dropped his bike with the stock bar has gone out and bought, you know, some absolute bulletproof system from somewhere or the other. Yes, true. And it probably is better than the stock bar. But but again, you have to, are you going to use the bike that extremely you know, what are the chances that you're going to hurl your bike at the ground at 40 miles an hour? Do you need that level of protection? Is it worth mm-hmm. spending $1,500 for that? You yeah, know I mean, I mean? it's, it's what I have to talk about with tire selection. Tire selection shouldn't be <laughs> what is best for the bike. It should be what is best for you as, as the way you ride. Exactly. Exactly. So, so again, if you, if you look to, you know, what are the experts uh, using? And, and, and again, uh, racers, you know, competitors, but again, not the ones that are sponsored by somebody and therefore have to use that product. Mm-hmm. You know, 
what are the, what are the average guys using? You, you know what I mean? Look, like look for a guy who's doing well but isn't, you know, on the factory team. What what do these guys tend to use? Because that they they can't afford to use something just because it's 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 got the name if it, if it doesn't work you know or if it costs more or they don't get a special one made for them you, you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. so well, well we're talking quality though and you you did mention about you know for instance your daughter's shopping for clothing she buys the, the name brand do, do you start with the company do you start looking at the brand itself is it the first thing you do or, or do you just go online and look for a product that sort of suits your needs and start to dig from there well, yes and no. Meaning, there's certain uh, there's certain brands that I sort of trust. Let, let let's call it, uh, and so that I look at it and go, well, if I was shopping, I'd start there. I wouldn't necessarily end there, but I'd start there. And then there's other, but I don't ever dismiss a brand because it's it's not well known. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I decide for myself. But but yes, if I want to buy. Uh, uh, just as an example, the tires I use most often uh, on my bikes are Shinko. And by all accounts, Shinko tires are one of the cheapest tires out there and they're just garbage. Mm-hmm. You, you, yeah. you know, and again, you're thinking, yeah, but my experience with them has been they work very well and, and they're very cheap. So just because they're cheap doesn't make them garbage. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and again, going back to my daughter's analogy, you know, if she's buying, you know, Nike running shoes and, you know, they cost $200, she's going to assume they're better than the Payless shoes that cost $40. They probably are. But you don't know. <laughs> but, but you don't know that. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try the $40 shoes just once to see. But but the Shinko example, <laughs> though, one of the reasons you're using that tire, that was part of the attractiveness of that tire is the inexpensive purchase price. Exactly. And I go through a lot of tires. So I do, you know, roughly 50,000 kilometers a year. So I go through a lot of tires. So price is more important to me than other people, perhaps. But also you're a a top rider, really. You've got the high skills to deal with a tire that may let a person down in in certain situations. Exactly. But if the tire didn't work, I wouldn't use it. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, I ride a fair bit of dirt and I ride with my buddies. And so... You know, if if they're all using, you know, whatever, Continentals or, you know, Dunlops or something, and they worked really well, and I was struggling to keep up because the Shinkos just couldn't manage, I I wouldn't use Shinkos, or I'd only use them when I wasn't riding something that serious, you know? Mm -hmm. But but I find they're a very good all-round tire, but but they have no cachet, you know? They're They're not one of the premium brands. They're not one of the ones with the reputation, and so... You know, and I have guys come into the store all the time, you know, they want to get their tires changed and there's nothing wrong with the tires that are on their bike, meaning they're 50% worn and it's a fairly good tire. And they've just read on the internet that such and such is better, you know, and they want to come in and change these tires. And I'll say to the guy, can I have the old ones? Because there's nothing wrong with these. You know what I mean? You're changing these for no reason. You're going to spend $500 for no reason. And But, you know, that's how... You'd, Again, you'd be better the, off spending that $500 on fuel and time. Exactly. And and that's the problem is the internet has kind of created this, uh, you know, you're a loser if you don't have these things, mm-hmm. right? That That's the danger of it. You know, you must, 
same thing, and I've even had this discussion with Clinton, is, you know, there's this thing on the internet that when you go off-road, you know, the second your wheels leave pavement, you turn off ABS and you turn off traction control. Not for everybody and not in every situation, mm-hmm. okay? But if you teach people that and you keep telling people that over and over and over again, they don't think there is any other way that you can do it, you know? So they don't hesitate. They don't question why, <laughs> you know, what does traction control do and why is it a problem if you're using it off-road? Figure well, that out. And, and then when you're approaching those situations, sure, turn it off. But in general terms, you know, maybe there are times off-road where you want traction control or ABS. You, you know, try mm-hmm. and understand it. Don't just don't just accept it as a given and that becomes the new rule. Right? There's a lot to understand, though. And that's part of the problem. I mean, just the, the, that topic alone, there's so much yeah, to understand. Yeah, 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 if you're yeah. not into mechanics and you don't understand mechanics yeah. really well, first you have to under, understand the systems. Then you have to yeah, understand, exactly. you know, the concepts. And, and oh, there's yeah. so much to learn so you can understand why people are going to the yeah. internet and, and reading on the forums. Exactly. But, but, exactly. We've but, talked but sort of, again, go ahead. ask the journeyman. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Don't ask Joe Blow. Joe Blow doesn't know necessarily. He may know, but he, there's a good chance he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way to tell. So go to the journeyman. Go to the Clinton Smouts or the Lawrence Hackings or the, you know, the, the people who have lived this for some time and worked with this for some time. You, you know what I mean? And then, But even then, don't take what they say as as. A, a, a binding rule that can't be uh, ever, you know, uh, ignored. So, so when Clinton says you should turn your ABS off when you go off road, ask him why. Learn from that. So, mm-hmm. yes, he's a journeyman. Yes, he's giving you good advice. But go deeper. Ask him why you turn ABS off road, so you do have an understanding. But don't ask your your, your buddy because he doesn't know. Your buddy is going to say, well, everybody knows you turned it off the minute you get off road. And you say, why? Oh, because you kill you otherwise. You know, he doesn't really know. He's going to tell you something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's going to answer your question, but he doesn't really know. Whereas, you know, a journeyman is the guy who he, he, he has found out through experience. He has learned through experience. He's had a problem when he was off road with his traction control turned on and it caused him a problem. And that's why he now knows that you turn it off. So, so, so ask him the question. But, but, you know? but at the same point, you know, you, you take it with um, a certain grain of salt, I guess, because you, you can get experts together, people who are really in, in the know, and they will yeah. disagree on certain points. Exactly, which is my point is you have to question them why. Because a lot of their experience may be uh, related to their personal experience of, of you know, what happened to them. Not what happens to everybody, what happens to them in particular, right? So if they say, oh, well, when you're riding up a really steep, loose hill and you have your traction control on, it cuts engine power and you lose momentum and you can't make it up the hill. Okay, good good, good, good point. D- do I ride up hills like that? You know, what's mm-hmm. the downside? Ask, you know, ask the question, what's the downside to turning it off? You know, if I'm coming around the corner and it's muddy and I open the throttle just slightly, the rear tire can slide out and I won't be able to catch it and I won't be able to bring it back and I'm going to go down or go off the trail. So 
if, if there are no hills where I'm riding and there's a lot of mud, I may want to set my traction control somewhere in the middle, maybe. You, you know what I mean? There may be times when it's advantage, yeah. advantageous, you know? Or where, where so, you can get by with it and, and just leave it on, not worry about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and again, even an expert, you know, again, here's a very, a very good quote. So I, I asked uh, Lawrence Hacking once, you know, who has raced a car and raced Baja. I mean, here's a guy who really knows, right? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, hey, Lawrence, what tires do you use? And he says, uh, whichever ones I get for free. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and that's and, true. And, you know, and again, it's a very good point because the difference between tires is not as dramatic as people think it is, for one thing. And again, as you were saying earlier, you know, a good rider can make do with a slightly inferior thing. So maybe it would be better to worry about improving your riding skills than buying the hottest tire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? If you have $1,500 to spend, maybe take a course in riding rather than changing your tires. You, 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 you well, see what yeah, I mean? And, and you can get a great, uh, a, a novice rider rather out on a great machine who will get yeah. nowhere off road and you'll get a, a, an experienced rider who will get on you know, like just the worst machine ever and do incredible things with it. Exactly. So one of the best things you can do is take a riding course. If you want to improve your off-road performance, you know, before you buy suspension and tires and, you know, stronger rims and, you know, all manner of weird things guys do, you know, it, the way better money is spent to, to go and take a course. But, but, but even then, quality becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of guys teaching courses who <laughs> really aren't that good, you know. So you need to go to, again, an, an established guy and look at his back. Look at his background, and and one of the the good ways to know is, and this is sort of also goes to buying componentry, is do the manufacturers use this guy? Mm. Right. In other words, That's good, yeah. you know, Clinton as an example is used by BMW and Yamaha. Mm-hmm. If there was a problem with Clinton, I'm sure they would have moved on by now. You <laughs> sort of mean clearly. Yeah. He may not be the best in the world, but clearly he's pretty good because he, he has that sort of unofficial endorsement, you know. And the same thing, if you look at MotoGP, they use Acropovic exhaust, they use Brembo brakes, they use, you know, all-in suspension. Chances are that's a good starting point because, again, the manufacturers who it matters to, are using these components, so it's it's probably a good place to start if you're looking for something. But again, don't don't jump to the conclusion that it's going to be the magic bullet. That just because you bolt any Olin's front end on your bike, you'll no longer have front end problems with your bike. Yeah, and the thing is that those manufacturers are motivated by the fact that they they're the ones with the money to sponsor that. So, so I mean, exactly, and and hopefully by the by the fact that the racers are actually using the product, that you, you start to get an idea there that okay, yes, they have bought their way in, but the product is good. Um, yes, or they wouldn't. They wouldn't still be there. Yeah, they wouldn't still be there. But but let me yeah, take you out of your comfort zone for it. If, mm-hmm. Let's say you do you know much about um, vacuum cleaners. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Oh, that's, I want to look for something else then. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, but let's say you're looking for a product like a vacuum cleaner that maybe you don't know much yeah. about. Where yeah. do you start with that? I mean, there are so many choices. Like if you go to buy, you know, some component or something, there's so many choices out there. What's the first thing you look at? Well, again, you have to start on the internet. And to be honest, you have to start with a brand name. You know, so in the, in the case of vacuum cleaners, you know, you'd start with Hoover or Dyson or somebody like that where you've heard the brand name. You don't know much about 
All right, well, I'll give you a perfect example. I, uh, I recently, I, I, I don't cook at all, ever, ever. And recently, because, you know, you can no longer go to restaurants and so on and so forth, I've started cooking. And so I don't know anything about cooking whatsoever, okay? And I was making an omelet, you know, this is a small steps. So I'm making an omelet and I know there are uh, nonstick frying pans. So I go into the cupboard at home and I pull out a nonstick frying pan, right? And I say to the wife, is this a nonstick frying pan? She says, yes. And I go, okay. So I put some butter in it, you know, and I, I break the eggs and I put them in there and, and they stick, right? So, mm-hmm. so my omelet gets all shredded up and everything else. And, you know, it tastes great, but it looks terrible. <laughs> so I said to the wife, well, th- how come the, 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 um, the omelet stuck in this frying pan and she says well it's because it's like 30 years old and you know the, the non-stick part is worn out basically you know yeah. and I said well, well what do you do and she says well I don't use that frying pan at all I use this other one and you know it, it's a cast iron skillet thing and she seasons it with it's, it sounded way too complicated <laughs> so I thought well, well I'm going to buy a non-stick frying pan for myself now right it'll be my first piece of cookware I've ever owned Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm going to go and buy a frying pan um, that I can cook eggs with. So again, where do you go? You go to the internet. So I don't know. I'm familiar with Canadian Tire. I go, well, I know Canadian Tire sells them. I'll check what Canadian Tire says. Says, And there's so many options, it's too confusing. So I say, okay, well, that, that's not going to work. So I start asking around, right? I ask people that I know cook. Hey, if I wanted to buy... Uh, a nonstick frying pan, which one would I use? So a couple of people sent me uh, a couple of links, you know, here, here's, a, here's a good one, here's a good one, you know, so on and so forth. And there, there was quite a general consensus that I should get this one copper-plated-looking thing. So I thought, uh, oh, all right, well, again, I know from mechanics that copper is a good conductor and this probably means it heats up really quickly and, you know, even heat and all of that. So, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I think I'll, 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 I'll look at this, uh, this copper one and, and Canadian Tire happens to sell it. So I go on the Canadian Tire website to, you know, order one through their, you know, curbside thing. And I'm, so I'm reading the blurb and there's a video there that says how to choose a nonstick frying pan. So I go, oh, this is great. I'm going to watch this video and, and see what it says. And the very frying pan that everybody had recommended to me, it says right in the video, this frying pan is only suitable for using low to middle heat. You can't use high heat with this frying pan. If you want to use high heat, you know, you need to have a pan that's ceramic coated or, you know, and they give you two or three options, right? So I'm thinking... Well, I only ever cook on max heat because I can't cook. And so everything is just about how can I get it done, right? So I always just turn the stove to whatever the highest setting is or the barbecue or anything like that. And so I go, well, this copper one would be completely wrong for me, right? So I, I need to get one that's ceramic, right? <laughs> so I start looking into that. And then again, I started asking people who cook, well, what's the deal with these ceramic pans? And they go, well, you know, you really shouldn't cook eggs on high heat. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, but if I'm going to cook eggs on high heat... Do I need the ceramic pan? And they go, yeah, yeah, you need the ceramic pan and you should get the ones with the little dimples in it because it does this and it allows the oil to do that. I said, perfect. 
So I went and ordered one, <laughs> one of those. But again, technically, so I did the research and I started, you know, with the brand name, you know, because I didn't know any uh, frying pan brand names. I knew the Canadian Tire brand name. So I started on their site and then went to journeyman people who cook, right? And mm-hmm. I said, so what do you think? And and it sort of developed and evolved and so on and so forth. And I've yet to use the frying pan, so I don't <laughs> know if it works, but but it sort of shows you how uh, the, the process can work. Don't just, if I just stopped at what my buddy first recommended on the website, this copper one, I would have ended up with the wrong thing, you see? Mm-hmm. It, so, that's a that's a great example, Warren. But but I have to say that it's funny because if you listen to your description of buying this frying pan and you imagine somebody walking into the shop talking about a motorcycle in the same exactly. way, and you, yeah, 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 I know exactly. you're not supposed to do with that with the motorcycle, but I'm going to do this with the motorcycle. And, exactly. And you missed your first journeyman. You turned to your wife and she said, "Well, I don't use those nonstick frying pans at all, Warren. You should have stopped there and, <laughs> yes, and learned but, how to but, use a frying pan." Exactly. But you see, I was looking at it in my own personal usage pattern. Right. I wasn't willing to go to the extremes that she goes to because she's a rail cook. So again, in, in, in the motorcycle analogy, she'd be a racer and I'm not racing. Mm. So I don't, I don't need to go that far. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I'm a commuter, so I just want a commuting frying pan. Uh, you know, I don't want a racing frying pan. <laughs> uh, it was just a... That is a great example. But but now that I know this, I mean, you know, I will never, ever eat what you're cooking at a barbecue. <laughs> don't, don't ever cook eggs on high heat. That's, that's what I learned from that's that. Right. <laughs> that was Warren Milner in Ontario, Canada. In the show notes, we've got some pictures of Warren as well. We've included the links to the other episodes that we had Warren on that I mentioned earlier. One was the DCT transmission episode, and the other one is how the internet shapes the market. Both those links in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Now, don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately for that, and like Adventure Rider Radio, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. This is Chris Witte with Woody's Wheelworks, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.